Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Good evening. My name's Alex Messina. I'm the manager strategy and planning here at State Library Victoria. It gives me great pleasure to welcome you all to the Policy Pitch, a joint initiative of State Library Victoria and the Grattan Institute. This seminar is held on the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation. I wish to acknowledge them as the traditional owners. I'd also like to pay my respects to their elders and to the elders of the other communities who may be here this evening. I'd like to give a warm welcome to tonight's speakers, John Daly, Peter Davidson, Kay Fallick, and Paul Austin, to Grattan Institute members and staff and friends of the library. I'm delighted to be here this evening to welcome you and listen to a panel of experts discuss Australian retirement incomes and whether we have a problem. State Library Victoria has been working with Grattan Institute to present this series for a number of years and I'm always impressed by the excellent speakers engaged in the important policy areas explored. It's a brilliant series and we're delighted to be able to make it available to our audiences. I'm also very excited to share an update about the library's Vision 2020 redevelopment. We'll be moving the policy pitch events back to the conference centre and a newly renovated Village Roadshow Theatrette for the seminar on the 12th of September. So if you are a regular, please note this very important venue change. I'm pleased to now introduce the moderator, Paul Austin, editor at Grattan. Paul has worked for many years as a journalist and editor at Fairfax and News Corporation. He reported from the Canberra and Spring Street press galleries and was at various times deputy editor and opinion editor of both The Age and the Australian newspapers. He won a Quill Award for Best Deadline Reporting and was highly commended in the Walkley Awards for Best Feature Writing and the Quill Awards for Best Columnist. More recently, he's been an independent media and communications consultant, specialising in speechwriting, editing and strategic and political advice. Please join me in welcoming Paul and our panellists. Well, thank you so much, Alex. And can I also welcome everyone to this policy pitch event in this wonderful space, in this wonderful building. I'd like to also join Alex in acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, and I too pay my respects to their elders past and present. As Alex mentioned, my name's Paul Austin. I'm the editor at the Grattan Institute, and I'm delighted to be joined on stage tonight by three experts in their field. To my far left is John Daly. John is one of Australia's leading public policy intellectuals. He's the CEO of the Grattan Institute and as such happens to also be my boss. So I hope you'll forgive me if I'm gentle on John tonight. At the moment, John is working on a substantial new Grattan Institute report on retirement incomes, which will be published in the next few months. And tonight you'll get something of a sneak preview. To my immediate left is Kay Fallock. Kay, as many of you will know, is the publisher of Your Life Choices, a website digital community with a remarkable 250,000 members across Australia. Kay is, among other things, the author of a couple of bestsellers on how to retire well, 
So I'm going to be very interested indeed in uh, drilling into her knowledge and insights tonight. In the middle is Peter Davidson. Peter is Senior Policy Advisor with ACOS, the Australian Council of Social Service. Uh, he has more than 20 years of experience specialising in, among other things, superannuation, taxation and social security policies. So I think I'm safe to say that at the end of tonight's discussion, we'll all be a lot better informed about the often complex and sometimes contentious matter of retirement incomes. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please put your hands together to welcome our panel. Thank you. Now, quickly before we start, uh, could I outline the structure for this evening? The panel and I will discuss and debate the issues for about 30 or 40 minutes, uh, which will leave about half an hour for questions from you, our audience members. Now, we've already received a good number of questions that some of you sent in when you registered for this event and I hope to put some of these to the panel through the course of the evening. But we certainly welcome and encourage live questions, as it were, from, from the floor. So please be ready to put up your hands when that time arrives. I should also mention that the Twitter handles and the hashtag for this event are displayed on the screen above us. So if you're keen to live tweet tonight's discussion, please feel free to do so. Okay, so let's get to it. I want to begin by asking each of our panel members in turn, perhaps the big overarching question, indeed the one we asked on the flyer for this event. We've called tonight's event Australian Retirement Incomes, Do We Have a Problem? So Kay, let me perhaps ask you first, do we have a problem? Yes. We do. <laughs> so we have what I would describe as a perfect storm and I was keeping it down to three factors and thought, what the hell, there's seven or eight. We have an ageing population, so we have the boomer spike moving out of full-time work. They're underfunded for retirement by most people's measures except for the top five to ten percent carrying more debt, suddenly there's mortgages going into retirement for the first time, now shouldering the risk of their own retirement income, so that shifted. Very little government support in terms of information, how do you get there, what do you need to know. Low trust in financial advisors, who would have thought, and inadequate financial literacy to handle complex super taxation, etc. Going into retirement with median incomes for men at retirement age of 110,000, women 36,000. So they're the numbers from two years ago. And throw one more into the mix boomerang children. Peter? A perfect storm. And a few blizzards in there as well. Uh, look, just um, taking a step back, I think there are four pillars to security in retirement. It's the age pension, super, affordable and secure housing, 
and healthcare. And we talk a lot about retirement incomes, and that's the main topic here. But frankly, the bigger concerns for many older people is security and cost of housing and healthcare. So it's the services as much as the incomes. So of those, the age pension is probably the least problematic, though it has some issues. Uh, and after all, we have a century's experience with it. With super, there's a lot of problems, and we at ACOS have been pointing this out for a long time. I've been pointing this out for uh, almost two decades. We have a system that was designed for a privileged few that was suddenly thrown out to cast out to, uh, to pick up uh, the vast majority. Uh, and indeed, the vast majority are compelled to use it. But the system was not redesigned for that purpose. It remains a system that mainly benefits the privileged few, despite many, many um, attempts to tweak its tax treatment. And the other problem with super is so much attention has been devoted to the contributions end and getting the money in there and very little thought until recently given to, well, okay, what happens to it at the retirement end? And finally, affordable housing, well, that's absolutely a nightmare in Australia and probably the principal cause of poverty in old age. You can, you can easily distinguish the people most likely to be in poverty in old age. It's, they're renting privately. And finally, healthcare. Uh, over the years, over the decades, um, we've built um, what appears to be at least a free hospital system, uh, a Medicare system that guarantees uh, access to reasonably affordable doctor's visits. There are some gaps in that, dental being a big one, mental health another biggie. Um, but that's, that's a solid foundation for security in, uh, in terms of health. Um, but what about, what about aged care? And what about home care in particular? And what about the cost of that healthcare system over the coming decades. We haven't taken care of that. Mm, thank you, Peter. We will drill into all of those matters in course, I hope. But John, a perfect storm plus housing affordability plus healthcare. We have a problem, don't we, John? Well, certainly a very bad forecast. Um, but I think in this debate, one of the things that you really have to do is think about retirement incomes relative to what? Uh, there's no doubt that some people in retirement are going to have more money than other people, and that's hardly surprising. Uh, some people have more money than other people before retirement, and obviously that gets reflected after retirement. So the question is not are there going to be some people who will have relatively little in retirement? The question is, how badly off are they? And in particular, how badly off are they relative to people before retirement? So let's look at what we can discern about that. 
If we ask people subjectively about their financial well-being, in other words, we ask them, um, are you financially comfortable? <clears throat> and the Members' Equity Bank runs a survey every year that essentially does exactly that. And what it finds consistently, year after year, is that the group that is most comfortable with their financial circumstances today is retirees. Now, they're not just asking rich retirees, they're asking retirees across the board in the same way that they're asking um, working families across the board. Uh, and they consistently get this result that retirees say they are financially much more comfortable than every other group in Australian society. Another way we can look at it, which is maybe a little bit more objective, is the Australian Bureau of Statistics runs a survey, and as part of that survey, they ask, have you, as a result of not having enough money, um, suffer, uh, gone without meals over the last month, uh, not paid the car registration, uh, delayed paying utility bills, um, uh, not invited people over for dinner because you couldn't afford um, the, the food? Um, those kinds of questions. And they call, of those, they call those various uh, issues financial stress. And when we look at those patterns of financial stress and ask, well, which households with which characteristics say that they are more likely to say they've got a financial stress, there's very clear patterns. Um, not surprisingly, retirees who own their own home and who are not on welfare, in other words, they do not qualify for any pension, by definition have quite high incomes, uh, and essentially almost none of them are under any financial stress, as defined by the ABS. Uh, if we take working households who own their own home, they're under some stress, um, but not masses. If we look at pensioners who own their own home, so these are by definition people who are getting some pension, but who also own their own home, not a lot of financial stress to see. If we look at pensioners who are renting, they're under some stress, but interestingly, they're under about the same amount of stress as working age households who are on welfare, who own their own home. And the households that are under way more stress than pensioners who are renting are working households who are renting, sorry, working age households who are renting who are on some kind of welfare. Uh, some of them might be on the disability pension. Uh, some of them, uh, in fact, more likely than not, they'll be on Newstart, as is very infamous. Newstart pays a lot less than the pension. And so it's not surprising that working age households who are on Newstart tend to be under a lot more financial stress um, than pensioners, even if those pensioners are renting. Now, the other thing that we can do is we can look across the distribution of people when they are retired and then also people today before they're retired and look at how much they're spending. Obviously, there's some people who spend a lot and there's some people who, not, who don't spend very much, but we can look at the distribution. And what we observe from the distribution is that pretty consistently, uh, people in the top 10%, say, are spending about 70% of the amount uh, of pre-retirees are spending about, uh, sorry, post-retirees are spending about 70% of the amount that's being spent by pre-retirees of the top 10%. And that's also true of the bottom 10%. And actually, for every group in between, it's remarkably consistent. And given that we normally expect that people will spend less when they're retired, for partly because they're not working and there's a bunch of expenses that go with working, partly um, because they tend to have much lower housing um, expenses. Um, again, 
it's difficult to see that there is an obvious problem. Of course, some people are spending, have more to spend than others. Uh, that's true, as I said, pre and post retirement. The question is, how bad is it post retirement compared to pre retirement? And the answer is, look, it doesn't look that bad. Then we can look at um, forecasts. So we've at Grattan been building a model that, that essentially looks at how much people earn during their lives, looks at how much they'll um, have in their superannuation, looks at how much they'll have in their other savings, looks at how much money that will generate in retirement. And the typical standards that are adopted by the OECD, by Mercers, are that you should have enough so that your post-retirement income will be about 70% of your pre-retirement income. And essentially, um, for, and, and you look in particular at households in the middle, and they are already above the 70% standard that the OECD uh, and Mercer's set, uh, and that's true assuming that superannuation stays at 9.5%. Interestingly, the households at the bottom, so those in the kind of bottom 20 or 30% of households, actually will typically have post-retirement incomes higher than their pre-retirement incomes. And that's because by definition, the households in the bottom 10 to 20% of incomes um, are not working full time, may well be getting material part of their income from Newstart. And so when they move on to the pension, um, the full age pension, uh, which then the bottom 20% by definition they'll qualify for, they actually get a pay rise when they go into retirement, not a pay cut. Um, so we look at all of that and we say, well, it's not obvious that there's a problem here. Uh, at least at the macro level of, of, of how much money people have. Now, as Peter points out, there are issues in aged care, there are issues in healthcare, particularly around co-payments. Um, uh, as Kay points out, there are issues around uh, irresponsible boomerang children. I say that because, of course, <laughs> my parents are here tonight, so I'm one of those. Um, uh, and I'm about to have some, I suspect, myself. Um, there's issues around financial literacy and so on. But in terms of the actual money on the ground, it's not so bad. Indeed, we would argue the biggest problem is precisely because the forecast is so bad, retirees typically underspend relative to their incomes. So about um, a third of Australian retirees will wind up dying with more money in the bank than when they retired. So most people um, are not spending down very much, and particularly the top 30% tend to be net savers in retirement. Uh, and if there is an issue with people not having enough money to live on, um, or not uh, to live on when they're retired, often it's because they're underspending, given the resources they have, because they're worried about a rainy day. Uh, and indeed, there can be a Force 9 hurricane outside and they will often continue to say, well, I'm still saving it for a genuinely rainy day. Mm -hmm. Kay, can I just ask you, you're uh, close to retirement uh, population. Your members are surveyed every three months. You know a lot about the atmospherics, the sentiment among retirees in Australia. Does what John has just outlined fit with what your members are telling you? Um, well, the greatest respect to John, who I think is a walking genius, um, I think he's just described a different planet from our, where our members are living. So these are the words of Lorraine. 
and we asked about whether the pension system was fair. She said, our pension system is unfair in the extreme. Our pension system is discriminatory, inadequate in supporting the neediest and complex to administer. It encourages manipulation and cheating and harshly punishes endeavour and responsible planning, driving many to arrange their affairs to draw higher pensions than should be necessary. Um, we've got comments along the lines of, in winter, do I heat my house or do I eat properly? Um, the health services is a, a massive concern for our members. 81% think they will outlive their money. So that's, they definitely will or they probably will. So these are real concerns from people who are aged 50 to 75. Peter, can I just ask you where you sit between the two planets? <laughs> I think, um, ah, good. I think it's true that a substantial minority of older people are struggling to get by, and it's particularly those who are renting privately. Um, the private rent assistance, which is added to your pension if you're renting privately, is worth a maximum of around $65 a week. Now, what can you rent for $65 a week in Melbourne, in Sydney, anywhere else in Australia, virtually? Um, so that's a huge problem. I think it's fair to say that if you own your home and are reasonably healthy, you can probably live frugally on the pension, especially if you're a couple. But the assumption that's built on is that you've paid off the home. And increasingly, um, new cohorts coming through will not have fully paid off their home. Indeed. And that's the, that's the tsunami that faces the retired population in, in future. So and what, what, Peter, yeah. does this mean, and I'll open yeah. this to the panel as well, but what implications does that have for the pension, uh, the way that it is structured, the amount, and its future? Sure. Uh, well, I'd start with uh, an increase in the rent assistance, because that's going to reach the people who need it most. One of the big advantages of the current pension system is that at least it's indexed to wage movements. Now, at the present time, um, and for forever, New Start has not been, and that's why New Start is, as John mentioned, though not the amount, $175 a week less than the pension. So if you think the pension is frugal, um, a single person on New Start around 270 a week, um, that's, that's Struggle Street. Uh, so at least it's indexed to wages, and at least um, almost a decade ago there was a large increase in the single rate because it's singles who were doing it toughest. All of the research showed that. It also showed that um, those who were renting privately were doing toughest of all, but they did nothing about that. 
but at least uh, the single pension was increased. Mind you, New Start was not. Um, so I'd, that's where I'd start. I'd, uh, and I'd certainly start with, uh, with New Start, with the $40 a day payment. And bear in mind a whole bunch of older people who haven't quite reached uh, the, the magic age of uh, 65, 66, <laughs> um, are living on New Start now. Mm. And if the pension age was ever increased to 70, um, God forbid, uh, a whole lot more people would be living on New Start. John, what, what should become of the pension? Peter mentions that. It's been here for decades. It's part of the Australian Social Compact. Uh, is it here forevermore? What should become of it? And what sort of age should people become eligible for it? Well, I might come to that last bit uh, a little bit later because I think first in terms of talking about the pension, I think it goes to a lot of the issues that Kay and David quite rightly raise. So um, are there people at the bottom who are not doing particularly well? Clearly yes, and clearly those who are on a full pension and who are renting in the private rental market are those who are under the most stress of any group amongst those over the age of 65. Uh, and clearly the answer there is not to increase the pension, it's to increase the uh, Commonwealth rent assistance um, because it, that, spe that specifically goes to those who are renting as opposed to owning. Uh, and as Peter points out, at, at $65 a week, Commonwealth rent assistance doesn't go very far. Uh, and of course it would have the virtue that if you change that, you would presumably change it for both uh, those over the age of 65 or 60. Five and a half, as I think we now are, um, and for those who are under that age and who are on New Start, because if it's very hard renting on the pension, it's even harder renting in the private rental market uh, on New Start. Um, so I think that to the extent that we are worried about those at the bottom, and there are lots of reasons to worry about those at the bottom, although I think, as I've indicated, a greater proportion of the population is effectively at the bottom when they're in working age than when they're retired. Um, if we are worried about that, then the rent, Commonwealth rent assistance is the obvious place to start. The second place that I would go, however, is also the issues that Kay was raising around the system isn't, quote, fair. And I think there are issues around that. Um, is it worth saving? Uh, for people who are um, towards the kind of, in the bottom half of the distribution, the answer is we've now set the pension assets test um, with a taper so large that in many ways it's not particularly worth saving. So the way that that assets test now works is that for every $1,000 you have in assets, you get $78 a year less in pension. Now if you think about that, you've got $1,000 in assets, current um, rates, that's going to generate, depending on how aggressive your investment strategy is and depending on what returns are from year to year, it's going to generate about $75 a year in returns. Uh, so that's wiped out by the $78 uh, that the government's reduced your pension by. And essentially the, uh, the value of, the, of that $1,000, and it's a material value, but the only real value of it is drawing down on it over time. It's not the returns that it will generate. And of course, if, all of the, if the only value of it is drawing down on it over time, then by definition, the kind of value of it, roughly speaking, is well, what you saved in the first place plus a bit extra because it's accumulated returns, but it's not providing much for you in retirement and, it, and 
I think many people are arguing that that taper rate, um, as it's known for the age pension assets test, is too high, uh, and that we should um, essentially take away less of your pension for every $1,000 of assets that you have in the savings. And then I think the third place that there's real unfairness is in how the age pension assets test treats housing. Uh, and this, of course, is related to the Commonwealth Rent Assistance. So the way that it works at the moment is that, in effect, the pension takes into account the first $200,000 or $203,000, I think it now is, of your home, and it ignores all of the rest of the value. Now, when you think about it, that is completely the wrong way around. If you came to me with a design for the age pension and said, we're going to ignore the value of your home up to 600,000, and then we're going to take into account all of the rest, I could kind of see a sort of logic to that. But to sort of say that on the, other, in the opposite, that we're going to count the first 200,000 and then ignore all of the rest, even if it's a $3 million home, does seem a little odd, and that is exactly how the current system works. And I think what it leads to is lots of pensioners saying, well, I'm living you know, in a much less um, much less nice conditions, but I'm getting exactly the same pension as the person next door because they're in a much bigger house, but that's being ignored. Or alternatively, they say, worse still, I'm renting the same house as the person next door, but I've got way less to live on because they happen to own theirs, whereas I'm renting. And I've, as it were, all of the money that I would have otherwise spent owning the house, I've got in the bank, uh, and because that uh, gets counted in the assets test, I wind up with way less, in fact, quite possibly no pension at all. How is that fair? To which the answer is outstandingly good question. It's probably not. So I think there are issues with the fairness or otherwise of mm. the pension. Mm. I think there are issues in terms of how much people have to spend right at the bottom, but I think the problem is not the pension, it's the Commonwealth rent assistance. And Kay, can you agree with John on the fairness discussion with regard to the pension and particularly the idea that the family home should be included in the assets test? Well, look, interestingly, I can. Um, I think the base rate, I would, I would argue certainly rental assistance supplement does need to increase. I think the base rate of the pension is too low. Does anybody in the room know what the full single age pension is with supplements today per year? It's 23,000, 23 and a half. For a couple, it's 35 and a half. And on the numbers we've got on household expenditure for the single renter, who we call cash-strapped out of the retirement tribes, the expenditure is 22,593. So 600 left over if you have a catastrophe or your teeth fall out or something else happens. Uh, the couple expenditure cash strapped is 35,954, um, so they're 400 out of pocket. So these, these, this is too fine a line for people who may need money unexpectedly for health reasons or to fix the guttering or a hole in the, in the roof or whatever it might be in winter in Melbourne. The base rate, I believe, is too low. And if we look internationally, because we often say, well, how, how are we rating against OECD nations? The most recent information I've seen, 2015, tells me we are the third meanest nation 
out of OECD top 20. Say that again, Kay. The third meanest. So the last time I looked, we were behind Korea and Mexico. Um, we are not generous in terms of percentage of GDP on the pension. Okay, putting one more thing, it is too complex. If you go onto the Centrelink website and you try and apply, it's a 26-page form. Right? There is no help. So we created a tool to fix that because people can't do it. They then have to go and pay someone to help them do it. It's not an easy thing to apply. And many people are scared of declaring assets and getting caught out with robo-debt. So that's a problem. But to come back to the actual question asked, um, we asked our members if they felt the family home should be put into the means test. And I, top of head, have forgotten the numbers, but a, a, quite a high number said, yes, that's fair. So we were asking at what level, and definitely above the three million par mark, people said, yeah, okay, put it in. Can I turn to super, the other sort of leg of uh, formal retirement income in Australia? Um, and again to the panel, but perhaps starting with you, Peter, you've flagged your concerns, but have we got super policy right yet? Are we getting close? Where do I begin? <laughs> uh, look, super is based on some fine principles. Uh, and one of the reasons, by the way, that uh, we're relatively stingy on the age pension is that we never had a social insurance system in Australia, as most other, virtually every other yes. wealthy country has, where people have to put aside funds out of their wages for retirement. And so we, in, we did it differently by combining the age pension as the safety net and then superannuation on top of that. Uh, so it's, it's based on some fine principles that uh, to compel people to save, to achieve a decent retirement income significantly above the age pension. That's on the face of it sensible policy. Mm -hmm. And secondly, that long-term savings should be taxed differently, more generously, in other words, um, than other forms of income, especially if things like uh, owner-occupied housing are not taxed at all, as, as, we, as we don't. Now, the trouble is successive governments have taken those simple principles and mangled them. And so what they've created is a beast that eats public revenue and scares and confuses the hell out of low and middle income earners, <laughs> um, much more so than uh, the more straightforward, albeit complex, um, social insurance systems that exist uh, overseas. So let me just begin on the tax treatment, because that's a, a particular concern of ours and mm. of mine for, for many years. Mm. When the super guarantee was first introduced in the early 90s as part of a deal between the ACTU and, uh, and the, the then Labor government, we were 
edgy about it. People are being compelled to save 9% of their wages, and it does ultimately come off wages. Don't believe that the employer's paying. Ultimately, we pay. Um, when the tax breaks for super um, essentially benefit the top end and, and aren't of much use at all to low and middle income earners, or certainly weren't at that time. Anyway, we had a meeting with um, senior folk at the ACTU and they said, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll get this in, lock it in, get it legislated, um, super guarantee, 9% of wages, and then we'll fix the tax breaks. And they've been fixing it every year since then. And, Have they and it ain't so fixed. <laughs> and the, the fundamental problem is, um, on the contributions end, that 15% that flat tax on foregone wages, and it's still there. So think about it, if you're on the top tax rate, 47 cents in the dollar, then the benefit to you per dollar invested in super, foregone wages, 32 cents in the dollar. If you're on $20,000 or less, the benefit to you in foregoing wages for super, zero. So it's upside down. Now, there are surcharges and there are low-income um, super offsets and, and the like. They've, they've tinkered around at the top and the bottom, but uh, they ha no government has yet reformed that flawed structure by replacing the flat 15% tax with a rebate that gives you the same tax break per dollar invested in super, regardless of your income. Mm, mm. Been arguing it for years, it hasn't happened. And John, this, this scary superannuation monster, what can or should be done about it? Well, it's certainly a very large monster. Um, uh, so this is something that's got now uh, in, uh, I think it's around um, uh, a trillion dollars um, in assets. Um, it's costing us about $18 billion a year to have it administered and managed. Now just stop and think about that. 1% of Australia's GDP does nothing but basically manage our super. Mm. Is it plausible that that is the right number? If I told you I was going to take it to, you know, set up some kind of social insurance scheme um, that was, you know, going to take, you know, 9% out of your pay packet and kind of put in an account and invest it somewhere and send you a statement twice a year and then kind of give it back to you as a pension um, once you are retired, um, you'd say, oh, that sounds, you know, interesting idea. Lots of countries do that. And then if I told you the department that was going to run this thing was not going to cost what the ATO costs, which is one of our more expensive departments, at about three or four billion a year, but was going to cost 18 billion a year, you would tell me that my treasury career was very short indeed. Um, so it is extremely expensive. What, what can we do about it? I think there's a couple of things. One is I'd probably part company, um, uh, well, sorry, firstly I'd say we need to do something about the costs that's been sent to the um, Productivity Commission. I think to be blunt, we cannot rely on the industry to get this right. And it, very interestingly, in the last budget, there's a whole series of measures 
that don't look very large in budgetary terms because they don't actually help the Commonwealth budget that much, but they are actually quite potentially very large reforms to super. Uh, so in particular, taking small balances and effectively forcibly amalgamating them so that people don't wind up with six low balance accounts, usually through inadvertence, but instead wind up with one rather larger account, which of course will you know, attract much less in the way of fees. Um, and also uh, a series of reforms so that young people in particular are not forced to take out life insurance because you know, typically the average 20-year-old does not have a lot of dependents. Uh, and having, as I said, a 20-year-old myself, or 19-year-old as of right now, um, who tried to get out of um, paying insurance on her superannuation, it was not straightforward. Um, uh, and that's with you know, advice from someone who really knows the system, and it was still very hard. Uh, and, and the government has changed that. So I think that there's issues around the costs and we're working on them. I think in terms of the tax, um, there are still too many giveaways, although I would part company with, David, uh, with uh, Peter in the sense that I think we have gone quite some way on the contributions earnings because although it's not very beautiful, we do now, for people essentially on up to $20,000 who are essentially therefore paying um, uh, no tax, uh, on their normal earnings, we give them, in effect, about a 30% bonus on whatever they put into their super, which is, you know, roughly speaking, a 15% um, tax give back. Um, uh, for people on very high incomes, on 45 cents, um, we have a surcharge on it, so that um, effectively their tax going in is, being, is at 30 cents, and so, in effect, they're only getting a 15 cent tax holiday on their super contributions, very similar to people right at the bottom and, and so on. And so although it's not exactly your tax rate minus 15%, it's, or marginal tax rate minus 15%, it's actually not very far away from it. And it's administratively way easier than actually calculating it properly. So I think it's one of those things where we've got something which is not perfect, but not a million miles away from that kind of nirvana um, of a general 15% um, rebate. And then finally, I think there is an issue around the super guarantee. It's currently at 9.5%. As I said, on 9.5%, given the numbers that we have been running, um, most uh, people across the income distribution are going to wind up with you know, comfortably more than the standard of 70% of their pre-retirement income, and therefore the case for moving it up to 12% is very weak. All that that will do is essentially mean that people live substantial, on substantially less money pre-retirement than they will have in effect post-retirement. Because this thing's not a magic pudding. Whatever you put, whatever you're gonna take out is by definition something that you effectively have to put in beforehand. So Kay, what do your members think about the bipartisan policy of lifting the super guarantee to 12% and is there any sort of recognition that super as it's presently structured in Australia is a leg up for the rich? Um, I think the latter part of the question, yes, that is the perception that the concessions for the uh, well-off are unfair and um, I mean Super is, was a, a fabulous uh, attempt to even the playing field for the working men and women of Australia. Um, it's been in place since 1992, so we're talking 26 years, and the median 
super balances people are currently retiring on uh, are nowhere near comfortable. So it's imperfectly executed because life course disadvantage is really entrenched by this system. So there's, I think there's so much work to, to do on it. We, I wouldn't bore anybody with going through step by step. In terms of the amount, um, our members aren't unhappy with um, the increase over years, and of mm -hmm. course it keeps being delayed anyway. Mm -hmm. um, what they're unhappy with is the widening of the gap between the haves and have-nots because of super um, concessions. And there's also a very comfortable industry at work here, and John talks about the fees, and sure, that's extraordinary, but it's also an industry that seems to have told people that they need 1.6 million to live a comfortable life in retirement. And that kind of conversation has done so much damage because so many people have said, oh my God, I must have done something wrong. Am I a loser? Have I mismanaged things so badly? I am nowhere near that. Therefore, I might as well give up. I'm, I'm so far off the mark. And then you have people in denial who haven't got the confidence to make the most of what they've got. They just retreat. Mm, I can see nodding down the panel here. I want to open up to questions very soon from the floor, but could I just ask a quick one of each of the panel members whilst we prepare for questions from the floor? The retirement age itself. I think in our lifetime, policy has been to reduce it, policy now is to increase it. Um, are we right to be increasing the retirement age? Is there any magic number? How high is high enough, Kay? One size doesn't fit all. Um, we've got 56% of our members telling us they retired not at their own discretion, but because of health reasons or they couldn't find work. If they're out of work, they're on New Start. We all know New Start isn't enough. Um, for people who are brain workers and fit and healthy, go forever if you want and don't, don't be penalised for it. But for physical workers, my dad was a carpenter. Um, he got to 65 and his body gave out. Mm -hmm. So, no. Peter? Yeah, look, I, I agree with that. I think um, people's circumstances are very different. And for that reason, uh, I, would, I would raise the preservation age more rapidly and leave the pension age where it is for quite some time. And the reason for that is that uh, the people you're cons most concerned about are the ones who um, are going to be largely reliant on the pension and going to have to wait much longer for it, probably on other payments. They won't be in employment, they'll be on Newstart or DSP typically or carer payment. And so um, it's not helping them to, uh, uh, to force them to wait because Retirement was not a choice for them. And don't forget the people who are caring for the people who, uh, 
whose bodies have broken down, generally the partners, right? Um, there's a lot of force in, enforced retirement there as well. Whereas with the super preservation age, the people who um, benefit most from um, a low super preservation age are people who have lots of super because mm. it gives them more it gives them more freedom to retire much earlier and they're the folk who do have choices around when they retire and I think it's perfectly reasonable um, to lift that much more rapidly from 55 or 56 or wherever it is now um, given that um, most people, especially those who have a lot of super, um, can, um, will have 20 years, maybe 30 years of healthy life mm. uh, ahead of them. Mm. John, the retirement age, or, or more particularly, um, when will you let me retire? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'd agree with Peter that um, there's just no argument for letting people get access to their super before they hit pension age. The whole theory is that super uh, is there to partly replace the age pension and by definition it's not replacing anything um, until you've actually hit that age. Um, for the pension age, I think we need to understand the trade-off here because the, the, the government can't have a sort of pension age that's different from different people and we're going to you know, arbitrarily say, well, you get 55 and in Paul's case it'll be about you know, 83. Um, uh, it doesn't work like that. You've got to pick one. And the catch, of course, is that if you pick a lower one, as we, or lower than it might be, at, say, 67, which is where Australia now is, then it does mean that it acts as a message to people. It says, we expect you to retire at 67, and there's no question when you look at the data that some people clearly time their retirement as in stopping working, as opposed to moving off other payments, stop working at the point of that age. So it clearly has an impact on a number of people. And if it were higher, then there is no question that, as a result, some people would choose to work for longer than they would otherwise. As a result, the, there would be more economic pie to go around, there'd be more resources to pay for health and age pensions and all sorts of other things. And there would also be more in the way of government, um, uh, a better government position, because of course people would be paying taxes for longer and drawing pensions for less time. So there's no question that lifting the age would effectively grow both the general economic pie and the government pie. And then, as Peter and Kay have pointed out, there's a cost. Some people are currently, you know, 64 and three quarters. Um, and on New Start, and the idea of having to live another five years on New Start doubtless looks pretty intimidating. Um, and I think that what we need to acknowledge there is how this system in fact works in practice. So whereas if you are 25 and not working, it is very likely you are on New Start. If you are 64 and not working, it is very likely that you are on a disability support pension. Um, now, that's no doubt because 64-year-olds are much more likely to be in ill health, and I suspect it's because the reality is that doctors are much more likely to say you are unable to work when you're 64 than when you are 25. Now, I'm not going to cast any, don't cast any um, uh, comment on whether that's right or wrong. It's clearly what happens. 
Um, and I actually think that there's a very good argument for doing that formally. So one of the, the, the very real concern is, well, what about my you know, woodworking you know, grandfather who can't afford to, or rather won't be able to work past the age of 65? The answer is, well, he should go on to disability support pension um, uh, that already pays exactly the same as the age pension and has exactly the same um, benefits uh, in a whole series of other um, social welfare areas. Now, it might well be appropriate that we create something called the you know, old age, unable to work pension, um, because you know, on the basis that you know, some people don't want to sort of think of themselves as disabled, and we formally say, look, for people who can't work, and we do understand that people who are 65 are much less able to be working, we recognise that, and we don't want them on Newstart. And so we're going to create a special category for them that effectively recognises that and at the same time allows us to move up the pension age for those who can work and that, as I said, certainly on the numbers, appears to act as a signal to a material number of people and as a consequence, if we moved it up, would indeed grow the pie. Mm, thank you, Can I just uh, yeah, throw something in? It's very hard now to get on disability support pensions. Yes. And has been uh, particularly... Um, over the last six or seven years or so when it was tightened up, especially for people with back pain and mental illness, the people who uh, um, numerous ministers in the past have accused of uh, uh, skiving on uh, DSP. But uh, those conditions are real and they do prevent people from uh, engaging in paid work. I, I've got a slightly more radical suggestion. Please. Which is uh, why are pensions and unemployment payments paid at different rates? The, uh, you know, food doesn't cost any less for people on Newstart, nor does rent, nor do a whole bunch of other things. Um, in the ideal world, um, these payments would be the same, and this is consistent with the argument that's um, gathering steam in uh, recent years that we uh, should replace the whole thing with a universal basic income. Um, now, I'm not necessarily advocating that, but at the least, um, social security payments should be based on need, not whether or not you are so-called able to work, because as soon as you draw that distinction, um, you're, make, you're making a very complex system in which people have to go around proving they're unable to work, and that's just counterproductive. So the only difference that should exist when you, when you reach that magic age is uh, there's not a work test anymore. That's it. Very Simple. interesting. Very interesting, Peter. Thank you. So over to you, ladies and gentlemen. I'd... Um, like to hear from as many of you as possible. If you would like to ask a question to drill deeper into the knowledge and the expertise of our panellists or to take issue with anything they've said, now's your chance. Please raise your hand and if you get the call, would you mind waiting for the microphones that are roving the floor and please be as brief as possible. Um, questions rather than statements, please. Anyone? down the front here. And I'll move back through the hall as we go. Thank you. 
Um, I, don't, uh, I don't feel like it's possible to have a conversation about superannuation and retirement without including gender into the, the topics. And we know there's a huge issue with women retiring with much less superannuation. My question is, um, do you see a solution to the... I mean, the current system is clearly designed around men for men. Do you see a solution to how we can increase superannuation payments when we know that women, majority of women are taking time out to care? Excellent question, which I will ask each of you to respond to briefly. John? Um, thank you. Look, it is, there's clearly a real issue. Uh, the question is, what's the right policy instrument to deal with the fact that women tend to have much lower retirement assets and in many cases much lower retirement incomes than men? We have publicly argued that superannuation is simply the wrong tool for that job. Inherently, super takes money from you when you are working and it gives it back to you when you are retired. Uh, and the reason that most women have much less in the way of super is that they didn't work so many hours or they got paid a lot less for the hours that they worked. So no amount of tinkering with the super system is going to deal with either of those problems. The second problem is that if you provide people with a whole bunch of bonuses via super, you wind up with providing bonuses to, um, to women in particular. You wind up with providing, wind up providing bonuses in, in many cases to households, in effect, um, who are doing very nicely, thank you very much. Because although the theory is, well, we're going to look individually at women's incomes and men's incomes, the reality is that a very large number of households are couple households that effectively combine their finances. And when you give um, money to a woman who has notionally much less income, you are often giving money to a very high um, income household that frankly ought to be looking after itself. And so we would argue the right policy instrument is one that looks at people's circumstances, particularly when they're retired, and says, if they don't have enough money, then that's what we're going to do look after. And that's exactly what the pension system is designed for. And I think that's why you really zero in on things like um, rent assistance. So who is it that's really under pressure here? And the answer is, um, you know, not women who are, you know, part of a couple household and they both live to 85 and frankly, he earned a lot of money. Um, you know, they're doing quite nicely. The issue here is single women, either he or for that matter, her, if it's a partner, dies relatively early, she um, doesn't have a lot of money, uh, and, and she's on her own, and she's trying to live, she doesn't own her own, she does not own her own home, she doesn't have a lot of assets, she's living on the single age pension, and Commonwealth Rent Assistance isn't helping her that much. So I think that that's where I would spend resources, because of course every dollar that we give you as an extra top up for your super is a dollar we don't have to put in that very targeted way to rent assistance. Peter, the gender divide. Okay. Um, and thanks for the question because that's uh, a critical problem with, uh, with the super system especially. Um, it is true what John says, that um, many women are partnered to blokes on high incomes. It's also true that uh, many women are a divorce away from penury and so we have to be careful there. Uh, and secondly, it's true that super 
um, reinforces um, inequalities in working life and that particularly affects women. Uh, and so ultimately the solution is fix the inequalities in working life. So the, the wage gap, um, the, the care gap and the other reasons that um, uh, women have much lower lifetime earnings than men. But I have to say there are a few more things that could be done with the super system to uh, improve retirement incomes for women. I wouldn't go down the track of um, more compulsory contributions for the reasons that were raised earlier, that it's coming out of wages that um, in most cases for women are too low already. Uh, so that's not, that's not the answer. But uh, much could be done to improve the tax subsidy, the tax support for part-time workers, most of whom are women, uh, because at present um, that's, as I said before, largely zero. Mm. There's, a, there's a tax offset that offsets the 15% uh, tax on super, um, 15 minus 15 equals zero. Uh, what there should be is a tax credit of, and we'd suggest um, at least 20 cents in the dollar, that, um, that backs in, uh, to use uh, the, the treasurer's favourite uh, language, uh, low paid part-time earning women uh, they are the forgotten people in the tax debate, by the mm -hmm. way. It's not the blokes on 100 to uh, 250,000 whom everyone obsesses with around super as well and who, by the way, are still getting a tax break of 32 cents in the dollar out of, uh, out of super when those women working part-time are getting zero. So I think there's, there's quite a lot that could be done to, to even things up. Uh, generally, which would particularly benefit women. Thanks, Peter. Kay, is this, a, is this a cry of despair from your members? I think it's a cry of despair from women. Um, and I say start the revolution. You know, we've been sitting here for 40 years. That was when uh, Female Unit came out, I think, 40 plus years ago. And we, we're still talking about equal pay in the workforce. We're looking at how many company directors there are. And if you weren't strong, you'd sit down and cry. And it's coming through in retirement incomes for women. And I think somehow we have to address it through the workforce. And there would be some kind of flow on into super. But um, my preference would be to have a universal age pension which is a true safety net for all. And how would it be funded, I hear? Oh my God, what would we do? We'd look at the cost of super concessions, which I believe now are higher than the cost of the age pension. So the money is coming back into bank accounts and it's coming back into the bank accounts, and if I sound like a raving communist, forgive me, um, but of people who are better off and we could have a decent safety net and we could have a better system, more savings for the top up that super always was meant to be. Mm. Not a replacement, mm. 
but a top-up of the age pension. Thanks, Kay. Just before we start the revolution, I'd like to ask <laughs> for a few more questions, please. The gentleman in the middle here. Thank you. Uh, thanks, everyone. It's been really interesting. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, one issue is that Grattan's consistently been against the uh, SG increase, and I understand the, the basic economics of that, but in the current uh, wage um, non-increase world, where companies are consistently uh, profitable, why isn't an SG a good position there that's not going to necessarily take away from any wage increase? I think that's for you, John. Yeah. Um, well, we think it will. Uh, take away. We think that uh, uh, any increase in super will be factored into wages being even less increased than they are at the moment. You're absolutely right. They're not going up by very much. Certainly not, not going up by as much as in, in the Treasury forecast of the budget. That's another story. Um, uh, and the evidence for that is twofold. Um, one, matter of basic theory. Um, that, that employers think about it as a total cost. Secondly, if you look at um, the last national wa uh, minimum wage case decision, they were really explicit. They said super's just gone up from 9 to 9.25, therefore the national wage will go up by 25 basis points less than it would otherwise. Because we understand that for employers, they don't really care, it's money out of their pocket. Uh, and so if you take it away in extra super contributions, then by definition they give you less in the way of wage increases. Um, so we're pretty confident that it does in fact flow through and indeed even as an employer at Grattan, I saw us doing that. We kind of completely explicitly factored the increase from nine to nine and a half into wage increases at Grattan. We were totally explicit about by the staff. Now it might be that our staff are not completely representative sample of the population, but um, uh, <laughs> they kind of all looked at it and went, yeah, of course, that's kind of fair enough, we get it. And indeed when super was first set up, it was set up again explicitly on the basis of absent super, you'd be getting a wage increase of this, but instead you're going to get a lower wage increase, but you're going to get super. So it's always been associated in the public mind as a substitute, as indeed it is as a matter of, pub, of, of economic theory. A few more questions, please. Down the front here. Uh, my, my question is just... Um, uh, and I'm as much of a bleeding heart lefty as anyone else in the room, but uh, all these sort of um, initiatives that are being discussed by the panel all involve um, spending more money by the government. And um, it would be nice to think that there is a neat solution that you can take certain concessions away or cut spending elsewhere, but the grim reality is that it's a lot easier for governments to um, invent new programs to give us money um, with the funding for it somewhat on the never-never. How exactly do you think we can achieve both in a realistic way that you know, aims to sort of square the budget balance without relying on you know, excessively rosy treasury forecasts to get there? Peter, don't be offended, but uh, bleeding heart lefty, please. <laughs> Well, one, one suggestion, and I, I have uh, many more on that front because uh, we at ACOS have always uh, searched for ways to pay for the improvements in benefits and services that we, we advocate. Um, why is it that once 
your super is in the retirement phase, the fund earnings are untaxed. Right up until then, taxed at 15 cents in the dollar. Why is it that um, once your fund is paying you a pension, it's tax-free? It it's the greatest lurk ever. Uh, zero tax rate on investment earnings. Where else does that happen? And the reality is that um, the same people have often have both accumulation accounts and uh, pension accounts and they're switching the money across and churning it around. Uh, so A, it's not justified, B, it's being rorted, and C, it's uh, probably taking around $10 billion a year out of uh, budget revenue that could be spent on, well, it could, would probably fix um, the home care waiting list in one fell swoop if the, uh, you know, if the workforce was available to, to do it. And I, we could envisage a trade-off where, for example, the cost of home care, at least the care component, is distinct from transport and lawn mowing and so on, um, was free and publicly available to all off the back of that uh, off the back of that removal of that tax break. And so that is a concrete example of a way in which um, a tax break that is assisting a lot of people who um, in many cases arguably don't need it could be used to relieve the anxiety of probably a majority of, of older people around uh, future costs of care. Who wants the last question? That gentleman there, please. <coughs> Thank you. Uh, Peter Davidson started with four pillars, and it seems to me there's one that we've not addressed at all, and that's healthcare. Obviously a very well, broad, a broad topic, um, but perhaps as a starting point, references something to latch on to. What about the value of private health insurance? Peter, do you want to go first? I will go first. Um, let's compare for a moment our health, public health system with that in uh, the United States. Our public health system costs governments a great deal less as a share of GDP than the American system, and John probably has the uh, numbers on the tip of his tongue, but if, even if not, it's a, it, it's a well-known fact. And the outcomes, especially for the lowest 50% of the population, are markedly better in, in our system than, uh, than in the, uh, the US one. And part of the reason for that is massive underinvestment in the public system, but secondly, a massive over-reliance there on private insurance, which comes from your employer. So if you don't have an employer, or you don't have a job that pays insurance, and a whole bunch of people in the US um, have jobs that don't offer that, and they're, again, uh, low-income earners who are more likely to be sick. 
So the solution in, in our view is do away with subsidies for private health insurance, just get rid of them, um, invest the money in a public health, a sustainable public health system where there is a, a single purchaser for health care and aged care, um, namely government or a government authority, uh, and that way, in that way, the costs can be contained, which they haven't managed to do in, in the US. We've managed better, but not, but increasingly, we're not managing, because look at the cost of uh, medical specialists, and that's a huge out-of-pocket cost for. Um, for large numbers of older people especially. We're not keeping control of that. One of the reasons for that is that they've got this extra, this added income stream from hiring, uh, from private health insurance and from, um, and from high income earners who can afford just to pay them whatever they, whatever they care to charge. Uh, systems that have a single payer um, do manage to contain the costs and to guarantee decent health care for everyone. And we kind of do a good job now, but in a decade's time, I really worry about that. Kay, how high does health care rate among retirees? And what about private health insurance and the cost thereof? Well, when we're asking our members how many have private insurance, we're looking at a figure of 72%. So it would appear that the private health insurance is the thing that is highly priced and, and last to go when serious cuts are being made. But the feedback we're getting in terms of private health insurance is that the contracts are so complicated. Um, people say, politicians say fairly glibly, oh, if you don't like your bank change, good luck with that, getting a loan somewhere else. If you don't like your insurer change, but it's never an apples with apples comparison. The online comparison um, websites are often taking a clip, so they're not showing all the choices. And often people have a legacy policy which covers them by nature of the years they've held that policy and when they change they then lose those conditions. So it's, it's complex. Our members feel that it's now become a, a almost unaffordable and what the, f the feedback we're receiving is they do not get the government signed increases on a year-by-year -year basis. They don't get that that can go up by that percentage when wages only go up by this much and bank interest rates are down here and so on. So they can't do the sums with that one. Mm. John, last word. How do, we, how do we make this work? Well, I think we probably need another seminar. Um, it's a kind of short answer. Uh, and, and I think that the, the underlying issue here is that um, a person of a given age today, let's take a 65-year-old, we spend about double on their health care in real terms what we spent on a 65-year-old 20 years ago. Uh, it's also true for 20-year-olds. We spend double what we used to spend on 20-year-olds. It's just that we never spent very much on 20-year-olds, and double not very much is still not very much, whereas double quite a lot is a, a very large amount. Um, and obviously we spend more on those who are older. So the, re the fundamental reason that 
that healthcare costs are going up much faster than inflation is precisely that we're actually providing a lot more healthcare to people. Now, the good news is that overall that appears to be working. So overall people are living for longer, overall people are tending to live for longer in better health, so with fewer disabilities than they used to. Um, so the good news is that the healthcare and the health spending appears to work. The bad news is that the, the cost of it is going up very fast mm -hmm. and somebody has to pay for it. Uh, and exactly how we want to design that system is uh, and the place of private health hospitals, private health insurance and all the rest of it, uh, it's getting late and we might do that another time. <laughs> yes. I feel another policy pitch subject coming on. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're out of time. Can I briefly uh, say a few quick thank yous uh, before we head off into the cool of the Melbourne night? I want to thank the staff of the State Library. Um, the library is one of the things that makes this city one of the great cities of the world and Grattan Institute is privileged and pleased to have such a close partnership with the State Library, so thank you. I want to particularly thank Megan French, who is the Grattan Institute's events guru. Please believe me when I say if it wasn't for Megan, this event may never have happened. I want to thank you, the audience, for coming along, for your interest, for your engagement, for your questions. Please keep in touch with the Grattan Institute on our website. Please keep a lookout for future policy pitch events roughly once a month here at the State Library. And finally, please, would you join me in thanking the stars of tonight's show, Kay Fallock, Peter Davidson, and John Daly. Thank you all. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.